the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. James Blend is producing. I have this wrong on the show sheet. Did you notice that? Chris Williams is engineering today's program. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it very much. Today, we're going to talk with Kevin Hassett. Uh, he is a Ph.D. He served in the uh, Trump administration, although reluctantly at the beginning. He's the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Very interesting uh, personality, as well as um, interesting book on our slide to socialism or toward and what we can do about it, what it may cost in that process. Also, I want to remind you, I haven't mentioned this for a few days, that the Christmas mortgage miracle is still ongoing. Imagine what you could do with the money you've saved if you didn't have to pay your rent or your mortgage for an entire year. What could happen if you enter the Christmas Mortgage Miracle with KPDQ from OsteoStrong PDX? You can enter once per day now through December 17th. Just click on the Christmas Mortgage Miracle at kpdq.com. And I want to remind you that the Singing Christmas Tree has added a performance uh, on Sunday evening, 6 o'clock p.m. They essentially sold out all other performances. You can get into the spirit of the season with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree this year at Sunset Presbyterian Church. And this um, this performance added at 6 o'clock p.m. There is a 2 o'clock performance pretty much sold out. I um, have the opportunity to sing along with Miss America, Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenwich, and others. 2 o'clock performance, 6 o'clock performance. Check it out uh, for more information. You can go uh, to kpdq.com for show details. This is the final weekend, by the way. Well, today is an historic day for Americans and an historic day for life. The Supreme Court heard a case that could spell the end of one of the most radical pro-abortion regimes in the world. For more than 50 years, Americans have been subject to the court and the decision they made from seven justices, seven judges that struck down protections for life nationwide, made America one of the only countries, one of seven, to allow elective abortions after 20 weeks. Over the next several months, the court's going to have a chance to undo that disastrous decision, allow Americans to once more protect the precious gift of life. And essentially what would happen if they overturned Roe would be that that decision would return to the states and they would decide what would happen within their state. I have no hope whatsoever that that Oregon would become a pro-life state. In fact, we were one of the first states before Roe to legalize abortion. But the energy around today's oral arguments is palpable. Tens of thousands of pro-life supporters encouraged the court to make the right decision, while uh, pro-abortion supporters did the same. They're merely a fraction of the nearly two-thirds of Americans, by the way, the pro-lifers, uh, who support restricting abortion after the first trimester, which is exactly what Mississippi law does. We pray that the justices listen to these arguments and ultimately act to uphold the inherent dignity of human life and the constitutional rule of law. It's time for Roe to go. And I have to admit, it's not likely that that will be the option. Yesterday, I discussed three options available to the courts that they would likely 
consider taking. That would be the third option. It's more likely that they will uphold the Mississippi law um, and uh, leave it at that. But we'll see what happens. Well, of course, the decision is in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Case Center. Uh, health, um, it, the case centers on Mississippi's abortion law that challenges Roe versus Wade. Well, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a potential landmark abortion rights case today. The states of Mississippi defended an abortion restriction law that directly challenges uh, Roe. Uh, the case uh, centers on the law which bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, much sooner than the current legal standard, which prohibits abortion bans prior to fetal viability, roughly 23 to 24 weeks into pregnancy. Now, that has been challenged of um, of late as science makes it possible for viability to come sooner. Well, throughout the arguments, the justices alternated between examining not just the legal standards for abortion laws, um, based on interests of the women and protecting potential life, but also the court's own interest in protecting itself from losing the faith of the public. There is, after all, a precedent at stake. To overrule under fire in the absence of the most compelling reason to reexamine a watershed decision would subvert the court's legitimacy beyond any serious question. Well, that's a quote from Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, quoting the opinions in 1992's Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Justice Amy Coney Barrett also pointed out, or rather pointed to, how Casey's very explicit, uh, explicitly uh, took into account public reaction. She asked if there should be a special standard for overturning cases of particular importance. Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart said there should not uh, be. He argued that while Casey was unusual and a mistake, the court could say now that their legitimacy comes from standing for constitutional principles and overruling when appropriate. Well, Justice Breyer later pointed to Barrett's discussion on of public reaction and warned that in watershed cases where people are really opposed on both sides, no matter how the court rules, there will be accusation of politicization. Uh, that's uh, what kills us as an institution, he said, arguing that if the court is going to overturn such a case, you better be expletive sure that the normal st- uh, stare decisis elements are analyzed with a clear conclusion that the case warrants overturning. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she noted that a woman's right to get an abortion has been clearly set and never challenged since Casey and how over 50 years there have been uh, 15 justices who ruled in favor of a right to abortion compared to four against and that the sponsors of the Mississippi law came right out and said that they were introducing the bill because they are a uh, uh, there are new justices on the court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? Acts, she asked. That was difficult to enunciate. Well, Stewart said that the court's concern about appearing political means that they should base their decision on the Constitution. Sotomayor said that Casey did this, even if Stewart. Uh, does not think so. Casey gave one paragraph to the workability of Roe. Stewart responded, adding that the decision then went into the undue burden standard, which Stewart called the most unworkable legal standard in history. Well, Stewart then added that Casey did not take into account advancements in medical knowledge. When asked what the advancements have taken place since Casey, he pointed to studies on fetal pain, which Sotomayor dis- uh, dismissed as being from a small fringe of doctors and not a signal of an actual advancement of knowledge. She noted that brain-dead people have responded to stimulus, so a fetal response does not necessarily mean anything. 
This is, from my perspective, breathtaking. Returning to the viability line, Stewart said it was quintessentially legislative. He later argued that this line discounts the state's interest in protecting human life. More on that uh, hearing that took place earlier today and the decision of which will occur sometime this summer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in the second hour, we'll hear from Kevin Hassett. He's a Ph.D. and the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We're talking about the Supreme Court. They heard oral arguments in a potential landmark abortion rights case today. As the state of Mississippi defended an abortion restriction law, that directly challenges Roe versus Wade. Well, Justice Elena Kagan, she questioned whether his viewpoint, the uh, person who argued the case for Mississippi, whether his viewpoint of when life begins is a religious one. Stewart insisted that it is not and that regardless of when life begins, it's still a human organism involved. Well, Stewart said there are difficult questions involved in the abortion debate and that the people should get the debate these hard uh, get to debate these hard issues. When asked when the interest of the woman enters the equation, Stewart said that it is always there. But the role and Casey uh, changed this by putting in a viability line that eliminates the unborn child's interest pre viability. Justice Brett Kavanaugh asked Stewart to clarify that he is not arguing for the court to make abortion legal, but should remain neutral on the issue and let the states handle it. Allows an interests or rather allows all interests to have full voice, Stewart said. Well, Elena Kagan, the justice, uh, asked how the court should handle abortion cases if the viability line was eliminated and it was just a blanket undue burden standard throughout pregnancy. Stewart admitted that this would be difficult, which is why his preference is for Roe and Casey to be overturned entirely. Julie Reichelman, representing Jackson Women's Health, argued that an undue burden test would not be workable without the viability line. She also claimed that the undue burden test does not even apply to this case because the Mississippi law is not a restriction on abortions, but a flat out ban after 15 weeks. Therefore, she said the viability line is the only issue. Justice Samuel Alito asked uh, Reichelman, again defending uh, the right to abortion beyond 15 weeks, uh, to defend the viability line against the argument that it is arbitrary, pointing to a woman's interest in being free of the burden of pregnancy. He asked whether that interest is still there post viability. Similarly, he argued a fetus interests in life is there pre uh, is there pre viability. Alito uh, asserted that this comes down to a philosophical debate. Reichelman said the viability line is good because it doesn't ask the court to settle that question or that debate. Later on, she said that the viability line makes sense because once the court recognizes the woman's interests, they need a line for balancing interests. Viability provides a line by giving a marker when the fetus can survive. Well, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, uh, who also delivered arguments Wednesday, uh, argued that the viability line is the most usable standard. Justice Neil Gorsuch asked whether some other standard could be used if the court did away with viability. I don't think there's any line that could be more principled than viability, Prelogger said. Well, Justice Clarence Thomas focused on the broad constitutional principles involved and what uh, Reichelman said uh, was relying on 
early in her presentation, Thomas asked her if she was relying on the theory of autonomy. She said she was looking to that as well as bodily integrity. Later on, Thomas asked what particular constitutional right protects abortion. It's liberty, Reichelman said. While discussing liberty with Kavanaugh, Reichelman noted that liberty has in the past been held to include marriage, childbearing and family. The argument is that this includes abortion as part of family decision making. Without that, she said, women will never have equal status under the Constitution. Well, throughout the hearing, Stewart emphasized the need to allow states via the people to decide on abortion because of its complex nature. Abortion is a hard issue, he said at the beginning of his presentation. Roe and Casey have failed, but the people, if given a chance, will succeed. He echoed this at the conclusion of the hearing. There are interests here on both sides, he said. There are interests for everyone involved. This is unique for the woman. It's unique for the unborn child, too, whose life is at stake in all of these decisions. It's unique for us as a society and how we decide if the states get to legislate on this issue, how to decide and how to weigh these tremendously momentous issues, end quote. Well, protesters gathered outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday before the arguments began. Some from the group Shout Your Abortion staged a demonstration where they claimed to be taking abortion pills, chanting abortion pills forever. The group didn't immediately respond to requests for comment on the video or the protest. Pro-life protesters also gathered outside the protest with some chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Roe versus Wade has to go. Well, Jonathan Turley, a constitutional law professor at George Washington University, provide and provided rather analysis after the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the Mississippi abortion law. Uh, Turley explained that the pro-choice side will likely be unhappy with Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who asked pressing questions about the basis of Roe versus Wade. Jonathan Turley said this. What I thought was most interesting was Kavanaugh. I think a lot of pro-choice supporters hope that he might, as he often does, tend to follow Chief Justice John Roberts. He was very hard hitting in a lot of his questions about the basis for Roe versus Wade and also some very substantial reductions on Roe versus Casey or rather Roe and Casey. So I think that pro-choice folks will probably be disappointed in what they heard from Kavanaugh today. It seems like Kavanaugh was really sort of pressing again on the basis uh, for Roe and also whether they uh, should keep uh, uh, whether they should keep uh, the uh, standard of the viability line. And he was really delivering some haymakers to the pro-choice side as to some of their claims. Justice Amy Coney Barrett did the same uh, in saying that you often talk about the burden of raising a child, but isn't it true Uh, You can uh, put up a child for adoption. So is it really fair to put that on the scale as we balance the interests in this case? She returned to that at least three times, and I think that's quite notable. Well, the uh, case has been heard, and the the, uh, justices will spend the next uh, period of time determining how they will rule on this case. And at this point, it's anybody's guess. Although most observers who have written on the subject seem to suggest they believe they will uphold the Mississippi law, and that's the, the as far as they are likely to go. But again, until that decision is announced, we don't really know. Well, a solid majority of Americans believe most abortions should be legal in the first three months of a woman's pregnancy. But most say the procedure should usually be illegal in the second and third trimesters. That's according to a new poll. Well, the poll comes just uh, came rather just weeks after the Supreme Court agreed to uh, hear a case involving 
a currently blocked Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks. Well, the new poll from the Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, finds 61 percent of Americans say abortion should be legal in most or all circumstances in the first trimester of the pregnancy. However, 65 percent said abortion should usually be illegal in the second trimester and 80 percent said that about the third trimester. With regard to the uh, second and third trimester, that is precisely what the uh, law in Mississippi attempts to do. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back to continue winding our way through the news, including one of our lawmakers says he's going to retire. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Representative Peter DeFazio says it's time for me to pass the baton to the next generation so I can focus on my health and well-being. Yes, House Transportation Committee Chairman Peter DeFazio, Democrat from Oregon, is going to retire at the end of this Congress. DeFazio, who's going to step down after serving in the House of Representatives for 36 years, becomes the 19th Democratic lawmaker to retire or run for different office in 2022 as the party tries to defend its razor thin majority in the chamber. Twelve House Republicans are retiring or seeking another office next year as well. With humility and gratitude, I am announcing that I will not seek re-election next year, the congressman said in a statement today. It's time for me to pass the baton. DeFazio was a country commissioner, rather a county commissioner. Uh, when he was first elected to Congress in 1986, he succeeded fellow Democratic Representative Jim Weaver, whom DeFazio had previously worked for as a congressional staffer. Well, the congressman, known as a political firebrand and populist, represents Oregon's fourth congressional district, which has been in Democratic hands for nearly half a century. But the blue-leaning district is expected to become more favorable to the Democrats next year, thanks to the new redistricting map passed by the party, which controls this, the uh, state government. DeFazio's being targeted by the Republicans uh, heading into the 2022 midterms when the GOP needs a net gain of just five seats in the 435 member chamber to win back the majority it lost in 2018. DeFazio was on the national um, uh, uh, congressional committee's list of potentially vulnerable Democrats and on a separate exit list of Democrats it's targeting. That's the National Republican Congressional List. House Speaker Pelosi, in a statement, praised DeFazio as an absolute force for progress, whose 36 years of effective leadership in the House will leave a legacy that will benefit the Congress and country for decades to come. End quote. Just going to leave it at that. Well, Congress is flirting with a debt ceiling collision, another close encounter, if you will. An asteroid a little smaller than the... Uh, Willis Tower in Chicago will strike uh, past the Earth on December 11th. NASA uh, classifies asteroid 4660 uh, as a potentially hazardous object. It will hurtle by the Earth at nearly 15,000 miles per hour. The asteroid is uh, in our neighborhood. But not to fear, Earthlings, the asteroid is still 2.4 million miles away. If only Congress's flirtation with a debt ceiling collision weren't such a close encounter. Okay, maybe it wasn't that great of an attempt, but you get the idea. Well, um, you can't overstate how critical it is that Congress address this issue. That's what the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, said in her testimony at a Senate Banking Committee hearing Tuesday. 
America must pay its bills on time and in full. If we don't, uh, we're going to eviscerate our current uh, recovery in a matter of days. The majority of Americans would suffer financial pain as critical payments like Social Security checks and military paychecks would not reach their bank accounts. And that would likely be followed by a deep recession, end quote. Well, Yellen warned Congress last month that lawmakers had until the 15th of December to lift the debt ceiling. And here's how this works. The Treasury loses its ability to borrow if the U.S. government hits the debt ceiling. Yellen told senators that Treasury has enough cash on hand to pay for its current obligations through the 15th of this month. But Yellen couldn't guarantee Treasury's liquidity uh, on the 16th of December. She told senators that things may be um, okay for a while after December 15th, but she wasn't certain. Hence her warning of dire consequences if Congress doesn't act immediately. Well, this problem comes as Democrats try to approve their $1.75 trillion social spending bill by Christmas. In a 50-50 Senate, Democrats know they uh, lack 60 votes to overcome a filibuster to pass their bill. Republicans certainly won't vote to crack a filibuster, so Democrats are using the filibuster-proof budget reconciliation process to skirt the Republican threat. Democrats can then approve their bill on a party-line vote. Well, many Republicans argue that Democrats should also tap the special filibuster exempt procedure to approve an increase in the debt ceiling on their own without Republican assistance. But the GOP ties this to Democrats attempts to approve their social spending package. Well, all of that spells a potential disaster if um, something doesn't happen one way or the other. We'll keep our eyes poised on that without concern of a meteor striking the earth in the next few days. Well, the House of Representatives, under the leadership of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is on track to have the least number of voting days in modern congressional history. The House is scheduled to vote on 100 days next year in the second half of the 117th Congress, after only 103 vote days this year for a total of 203. Even last Congress, the 116th that met amid the throes of COVID-19, the pandemic voted more often for a total of 208 days. But this number is still scores below the number of voting days from past Congresses. With the release of the 2022 calendar, House Democrats have officially scheduled the least amount of in-session voting days of any Congress in modern history. That's a quote from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican out of California. Uh, At a time when Americans across the country are paying more and earning less amid soaring inflation, rising gas prices and supply chain shortages, House Democrat leadership has decided their caucus will do the bare minimum, end quote. President Biden and the Democrat Party have failed to lead. And now Speaker Pelosi's caucus is failing uh, to even show up to work. He went on to say, by comparison, the 115th Congress under Republican leadership saw Uh, House votes um, on 251 days. Additionally, the GOP-led 114th and 113th Congresses met for 230 days and 244 days, respectively. Now, this could actually go either way. When they're in session, they can do a lot of damage. When they're not, well, you're less likely to see that damage. I mean, they have a job to do. They're being paid to do it. But these days... One wonders if it's in the American people's best interest when they do. Well, the lack of voting coincides with the multiple compounding crises facing America, including the supply chain shortage and immigration crisis crumpling the U.S.-Mexico border.
Well, additionally, voting has become easier for members to accomplish through the proxy voting measure implemented during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Pelosi's office um, didn't respond to the accusation that, well, they're just kind of sitting around doing less when they should actually be doing more. Well, CNN's Chris Cuomo is off the air indefinitely pending evaluation of his involvement in his brother's scandals. CNN announced it's uh, suspending the star anchor Chris Cuomo as the network evaluates his conduct. The New York Attorney General's office released transcripts and exhibits on Monday that shed some new light on Chris Cuomo's involvement in his brother's defense. CNN began its statement Tuesday morning. The documents, which we were not uh, privy to before their public release, raised serious questions. When Chris admitted to us he had offered advice to his brother's staff, he broke our rules and we acknowledged that publicly. But we also appreciated the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first and job second, end quote. Well, calls for Cuomo's primetime host to be Uh, fired uh, intensified Monday after newly released documents showed he was far more involved in aiding his embattled brother than he previously disclosed to viewers and apparently the network transcripts from his interview with the investigators show the CNN star admitted he would reach out to media sources to find out about new accusers who have yet to come forward publicly when asked I would reach out to sources other journalists to see if they had heard of anybody else coming out Cuomo told investigators his admission contradicts what he told CNN viewers in August when he uh, claimed I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation and other developments Anderson Cooper awkwardly addressed Chris Cuomo's uh, suspension to CNN viewers as he filled in for the embattled Anchor. Former President Trump celebrated CNN's suspension of uh, Chris Cuomo. MSNBC avoided uh, breaking news of his suspension, refraining from criticizing a rival CNN anchor. And MSNBC anchor repeated an Andrew Cuomo advisor's spin on the harassment allegations. And Mario Cuomo's accuser, Charlotte Bennett, called for CNN to fire Chris Cuomo, saying anything less lacks morals and a backbone. Joe Concha ripped CNN over the uh, Chris Cuomo controversy, uh, saying he shouldn't sniff a microphone right now. Well, the question is whether or not he's just suspended or if he'll ultimately be fired. The Michigan high school shooting left at least four students dead and a 15 year old suspect in custody. A 15 year old sophomore at a Michigan high school was taken into custody Tuesday after allegedly shooting and killing three students and wounding eight others, including one teacher, according to the Oakland County Sheriff's Office. The deceased victims were identified as a 16-year-old male, a 14-year-old female, and a 17-year-old female. Uh, Three of the wounded students were in critical condition on Tuesday evening, and one of those victims was pronounced dead earlier today, bringing that total to four. Sheriff's deputies were called to Oxford High School midday Eastern time and apprehended the suspect with uh, Two or to three minutes uh, within two to three minutes of arriving, the gun he allegedly used a nine millimeter uh, millimeter Sig Sauer SP two thousand two was purchased four days ago by his father. Oakland County Sheriff um, Michael Bouchard uh, announced the suspect had two fifteen round magazines. Seven bullets were still unloaded when police stopped him. When they took uh, took the gun from him, he had a loaded firearm and he was coming down the hall. Uh, uh, they believed uh, they interrupted what would potentially have been seven more victims being shot. The shooter who authorities believe acted alone was uninjured, was not answering authorities questions, according to the undersheriff 
on advice of his parents uh, and the attorney they uh, charged with representing him. And other developments, a Tennessee shooting at a high school basketball game left one student dead and one in critical condition. And on the uh, Waukesha Christmas Parade, thank you, Rob, a court lost the transcript of Daryl Brooks' bail hearing from a prior incident. The Atlanta airport suspect, who was in a gunfire incident that sparked panic, has surrendered to police. And Minneapolis saw a car drive through a Duante um, Wright protest crowd. Things are rather dangerous these days. I hope we're praying for the country and for those who are attempting to defend it in uniform. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick reminder, coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk with Kevin Hassett. He's the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. The book is published by Regnery. He'll be joining us in the second hour. Also want to remind you that Christmas is a time to share hope, healing, peace, and joy. And Focus on the Family is asking you to help them do just that. This year, you can join KPDQ to give families hope through your support of Focus on the Family. Through a special matching opportunity, your year-end gift will be doubled, dollar for dollar. God will use your gift to bring healing and redemption to twice the number of families. Get details on how you can give families hope at kpdq.com. Check that out. Well, the White House responded to the concerns of Moderna's CEO on the Omicron um, vaccine, saying we don't know yet. It's too early to tell. President Biden will be requiring stricter covid testing of legal travelers, even as illegal immigrants have been given Pretty much a pass. The University of Oxford on Omicron. uh, There is no proof COVID-19 vaccines won't prevent against severe disease. Mexico plans to give the COVID-19 booster shot in that country. Police are scrambling for clues after a routine bike ride turned into a nightmare for a family. And the science guy is being mocked for an insanely demented TikTok video with President Biden. The Lakers' LeBron James is in NBA's health and safety protocols and could miss 10 days or longer. An accuser revealed Giselaine um, Maxwell's alleged involvement in Epstein um, uh, revels. Um, they used a different word. I won't repeat. A superintendent has admitted that a major U.S. school district is doubling down on a racist theory. And the Salvation Army pulled their controversial racism guide amid public outcry. Oil jumped 2% following the Tuesday drop, and Pfizer is preparing shipments of the COVID-19 pill as the Merck pill gets an FDA nod. Some people may not get their gifts thanks to one FedEx driver who routinely dumped them on a local hillside. Apparently just didn't want to deliver. The U.S. Supreme Court heard the Mississippi case today that could end Roe versus Wade. They took up the, its most important abortion case in years. And the question will be how the justices maneuver their way out of the thickest, uh, the thicket that they uh, should never have entered 50 years ago. Will the court in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization settle for an incremental ruling that upholds a Mississippi ban on abortion after 15 weeks? Or will it overturn its misguided uh, precedents and return the regulation of abortion to legislatures in the states. Well, the United uh, Nations is considering Taliban admission. 
Nikki Haley reports that under no circumstances should the United States or any other country vote to recognize the Taliban at the United Nations. It should not be a difficult decision to keep a group of terrorists out of an organization founded to maintain peace and security. A study finds childhood development is suffering greatly as a result of the COVID crackdown. Uh, From face masks to social distancing imposed, mostly uh, despite the minimal risk to children, Carol uh, Lebu says the experts who've imposed masks on little ones at minimal risk of either contracting or transmitting COVID should hide their heads in shame. A lawyer wants out of the Christmas parade killer case. The hearing was organized by his attorney, Joseph, a dumbass, who requested to withdraw from the case. Uh, because he had a high number of relationships with the incident's uh, victims, the motion was granted. Well, Cyber Monday numbers disappointed retailers. The supply chain issues uh, didn't help. The buy now, pay later options have increased by 436%. But gun sales are up as well. It seems another item people won't cut back on is alcohol. The Ninth Circuit Court upheld California's ban on high-capacity magazines, a ruling that may head to the Supreme Court. California doesn't want citizens allowed to own guns that hold more than 10 rounds. Uh, Many pistols hold up to 15. The sex trafficking trial of Jezelaine Maxwell is officially underway. Her attorney attacked the victims in an effort to clear her. Afghanistan sees a humanitarian crisis as tens of millions are starving. Well, the president's abandonment continues to melt the country from the story. Some parents are selling their children in order to feed the rest of the family. CNN reports on a nine year old sold to a stranger as a child bride. Wealthy groups have formed to combat woke colleges as they withhold giving to colleges who reject free speech. And in a case of unacceptable judicial intimidation, Senator Jean Shahi warned the Supreme Court of revolution if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Twitter oligarchs implement a new rule so it can selectively ban memes and mockery of Democrats. Israel is warning the U.S. that Iran is prepping to enrich weapons-grade uranium, and China is the primary source of another plague killing Americans, fentanyl. House prices rose 18.5 percent over the last year, up 4.2 percent from the second quarter. Christmas trees will cost up to 30 percent more this year. And thanks, Captain Obvious, Fred uh, Chairman Jerome Powell retires the word transitory and describing inflation. Finally, Oakland needs more police. The liberal mayor blames defund rhetoric for the surge in violent crime. City Councilman Andre Dickens won the Atlanta mayoral runoff there. Well, on this day in history, 1824, the presidential election is turned over to the U.S. House of Representatives when a deadlock develops between John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, William Crawford and Henry Clay. Adams would end up the winner. 1862, President Abraham Lincoln sends his second annual message to Congress in which he calls for the abolition of slavery and says, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. 1942, on this day in history, during World War II, nationwide gasoline rationing goes into effect in the United States. The goal is not so much to save on gas, but to conserve rubber as in tires, desperately needed for the war effort. 1952, the New York Daily News runs a front-page story 
on Christine Jorgensen's sex reassignment surgery with the headline, XGI Becomes a Blonde Beauty. 1955, Rosa Parks, a black seamstress, is arrested after refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus, an incident that would spark a year-long boycott of the buses and the civil rights movement. 1965, an airlift of refugees from Cuba to the United States begins in which thousands of Cubans were allowed to leave their homeland. 1969, the U.S. government holds its first draft lottery since World War II. 1989, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev meets with Pope John Paul II at the Vatican. 1990, on this day in history, British and French workers dig, uh, or I should say dug, the uh, Channel Tunnel between their countries finally meet after knocking out the uh, passage in the service uh, tunnel. 1997, a 14-year-old boy opens fire on a prayer circle at Heath High School in West Paducah, Kentucky, killing three fellow students and wounding five. The shooter is serving a life sentence. 2004, Tom Brokaw signs off for the last time as principal anchor of the NBC Nightly News. He is succeeded by Brian Williams. 2008, National Bureau of Economic Research officially declares the U.S. to be in a recession. The Dow Industrials lose 679 points to end a five-day win streak. Also in 2008, President-elect Barack Obama announces uh, his national security team, including Hillary Rodham Clinton as Secretary of State, Eric Holder as Attorney General, and Janet Napolitano as Homeland Security Secretary. Obama also says Robert Gates would stay on as Defense Secretary. And finally, on this day in history, 2013, Edward J. Babe Heffron, 90, whose World War II service as a member of Easy Company was recounted in the book and television miniseries Band of Brothers, dies in Stratford, New Jersey. I love that series. It's very difficult to watch, but... So well done. Well, the Biden administration is preparing stricter testing for all travelers entering the United States or uh, returning to America um, amid the rising threat of the Omicron variant. Well, some of the facts. The president's enhanced winter COVID-19 strategy will be announced on Thursday. It will require every traveler entering the country to be tested one day before boarding their plane, according to the CDC. The U.S. said largely reopened its borders to fully vaccinated foreign travelers on the 8th of November. Fully vaccinated people can present a test taken within three days of boarding. And as of Tuesday, the White House chief medical advisor said there were 226 cases of Omicron in 20 countries. Now, most recently, one in the state of California. Well, Fox News confirmed that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has identified the first case of the variant in the United States. The California and San Francisco Departments of Public Health have confirmed that a recent case of COVID-19 among an individual um, in uh, California has caused was caused rather by Omicron variant B11529, the CDC wrote in a Wednesday statement. The agency explained that the individual was a traveler who re, uh, returned from South Africa in November, the 22nd of this year. The individual who was fully vaccinated and had mild symptoms that are improving is self-quarantining and has been since testing positive. All close contacts have been contacted and tested negative. Genome sequencing was conducted at the University of California, San Francisco, and the sequence was confirmed at CDC as being consistent with the variant of concern. Dr. Anthony Fauci, White House Chief Medical Advisor, 
told reporters in a news conference today that the individual had tested positive on the 29th of November and had not received a booster shot. He said that officials knew it was just a matter of time before the first case of Omicron uh, would be detected in the U.S. He went on to say, we know what we need to do to protect people. Get vaccinated if you're not already vaccinated. Get boosted if you've been vaccinated for more than six months with an M in our RNA or two months with Johnson and Johnson and all the other uh, things we've been talking about. The news comes as scientists continue to study the risks posed by the new strain of the virus. Well, a recent study on migration, well, it tells us a little different story than we've been hearing. We'll talk about that in the next hour of today's program. We'll also hear from Kevin Hassert, or rather Hassett, who is the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to sharing a conversation with Kevin Hassett. He's the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. That's coming up in the next couple of segments. And we'll also uh, consider Advent as we are officially in the Christmas season. So that's coming up uh, in this hour of today's program. Also want to remind you that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has added a performance on Sunday evening. It's pretty much been sold out and that's such a blessing. Uh, but they've added a performance, added a performance, I should say, uh, for Sunday at 6 o'clock p.m. So check that out at kpdq.com for more details for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree's final weekend. Well, a recent study on migration from the Migration Policy Institute and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has concluded what many Americans have long known. The number one reason the vast majority of migrants enter the U.S. illegally is for employment. Uh, The study was based upon an in-person survey of some 5,000 individuals combined with another online survey that garnered 6,000 responses. Again, it found that the primary factor pushing people to migrate to the U.S. was jobs. Analysts noted low wages, unemployment, insufficient income to cover basic necessities directly affected people's livelihoods and contributed significantly to the desire to immigrate. Furthermore, the study found that some 30 percent of households in three countries, El Salvador, Honduras and Guatemala, relied on money sent to them from household members working in the U.S. Well, the report flies in the face of the administration's narrative on migration, which is that the primary root causes for illegal immigration are violence and insecurity. The administration uses the narrative to label these individuals as asylum seekers. In reality, the vast majority are job seekers. The vice president, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's border czar, recently produced a report on her own in which she claimed the COVID-19 pandemic and extreme weather conditions have indeed exacerbated the root causes of migration, which include corruption, violence, trafficking and poverty. And while that may, I'm adding, play a role that apparently is not the primary uh, reason. Uh, That was clearly not the conclusion of MIT's report. And when asked about it, Harris' office was mum. The Washington Times reports, when asked the motivations for leaving, economics dominated with 75% for uh, Salvadorans, 89% for Hondurans, and 91% for Guatemalans, citing that as a factor. Meanwhile, the vice president's uh, claim of climate and environment being a major factor was cited in just 3% of migrants, and insecurity or violence was cited in just 8% of the cases. 
Well, a major pro-life group is asking lawmakers to stop President Biden's administration from stealthily easing Food and Drug Administration regulations on abortion pills. In a letter first obtained by the Daily Signal, Students for Life Action President Kristen Hawkins wrote that an abortion crisis is developing in America through a radical shift in policy in the works that will create a reckless death-by-mail online chemical abortion pill market. You have a chance to get ahead of this extreme change in abortion policy that will rival the societal change that followed Roe versus Wade, the letter said. While activists on both sides of the aisle focus on the upcoming uh, case challenging Roe versus Wade, Hawkins wrote the change is quietly underway at the Food and Drug Administration that she warns is just as radical and far reaching as Roe. The FDA is contemplating getting rid of health and safety standards for chemical abortion pills used to end preborn life currently up to 11 weeks of pregnancy. This is a sweeping change when you consider that more than 92 percent of abortions take place before 13 weeks of pregnancy, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Well, the Biden administration announced in April that it would lift the FDA's uh, FDA's previous risk evaluation and mitigation strategy regulations on abortion drugs, allowing the abortion pills to be delivered by mail during the coronavirus pandemic. The Students for Life Action president called on lawmakers to co-sponsor Virginia Representative Bob Good's Tele-Abortion Prevention Act of 2021 and to hold the Biden administration accountable for risking women's health. Under the Republican congressman's legislation, it would be a federal offense for a doctor to perform a chemical abortion if he does not first conduct a physical examination, be present during the abortion and schedule a follow-up visit. Hawkins said that this legislation would inhibit deadly online abortion pill distribution, protect women's health and lives, and ensure that women are not being coerced or abused. While the pro-life generation uh, wants to abolish abortion, there are many reasons to oppose distribution of chemical abortion pills, she wrote. Even for those who say they support abortion, that's no argument for these pills to be used recklessly. These pills kill, they end preborn life, and can end a mother's life as well. Well, in Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller, the Supreme Court will decide whether Congress meant to create a private right of action to sue for compensatory damages for emotional distress under existing federal civil rights laws. And while this uh, this case has flown larger under the radar or, or rather largely under the radar, it will have colossal implications for the ongoing legal battle to protect religious freedom, especially as it intersects with the modern interpretations of civil rights law and government anti-discrimination provisions. Jane Cummings, who is deaf and legally blind, had attempted to make a physical therapy appointment at Premier Rehab in Keller, Texas, for her chronic back pain. Premier Rehab is a small business and a top rehabilitation clinic that's also a recipient of federal funds. Well, due to her disability, Cummings requested that Premier provide her with a sign language interpreter. Premier declined, instead offering to refer Cummings to a different clinic or provide alternative accommodations. The alternative accommodations, if it offered Cummings to communicate with her through written notes, lip reading and gesturing, were, she believed, insufficient to meet her needs. Cummings first asked uh, Premier Rehab for an interpreter in October of 2016, returning a few days later and again in February of 2017. Each time, Premier denied her an interpreter, which they would have to provide 
and fund. Eventually, Cummings chose another provider that offered the accommodation she sought, but received treatment she believed to be unsatisfactory. In August of 2018, Cummings sued Premier Rehab. Five years and several appeals later, the Supreme Court is now set to hear oral arguments in her case. Um, Cummings' lawsuit against Premier Rehab alleges that if uh, its refusal to provide an interpreter caused her humiliation, frustration, and emotional distress. And even though abundant remedies for emotional distress exist under state law, she claims that Premier Rehab's conduct violated federal anti-discrimination statutes, specifically the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. Uh, which prohibits recipients of federal funding from discriminating against disabled individuals. Well, under current law, compensatory damages are available to plaintiffs under Title uh, VI of the Civil Rights Act and statutes that incorporate its remedies. Well, there's uh, concern that this may also have implications for religious freedom. And for that reason, uh, the Supreme Court uh, has been asked to weigh in on this uh, this case of emotional distress Again, with serious implications for religious freedom. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll hear from uh, Kevin Hassett on The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to socialism. Kevin Hassett wasn't always a Trump supporter. In fact, he took a dim view of the populist agenda, the mercurial temperament of the man who had won control of the Republican Party, but experience would change his mind. Well, as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, he helped Donald Trump bring about a golden age of prosperity in which Americans, who'd been left behind for decades of failed policy, were given the opportunity to succeed. The miracle lasted three years until a virus from China killed it. Well, his book is titled The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, and it reveals uh, President Trump's proven strategy in which a mix of free market principles and enlightened nationalism revived the American economic dynamo. Well, guided by an unlikely team of advisors and driven by his own force of will, he recognized what Washington bureaucrats, that they had undermined the American dream by inserting themselves into every aspect of the economy. Now, these so-called experts were leading us down the path to socialism, and President Trump fought like mad to turn things around. Well, Kevin Hassett is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and managing director of the Lindsay Group. He served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2017 to 2019, returning to the White House as a senior advisor to President Trump. He helped guide the economic response to the coronavirus pandemic. Prior to his White House service, he was a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior economist for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania and has taught at Columbus, uh, rather Columbia University and the New York University School of Law. He's the author of the bestsellers Dow 36,000 and Bubbleology. Today, he joins us to talk about his latest, simply titled The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Kevin Hassett, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's an honor to be here, and uh, you've been a leader in talk radio for for a long, long time. Well, you've <laughs> been around for a while, that's true. Now, you admit uh, early on that you weren't always a Donald Trump supporter. Uh, you took a dim view of some aspects of his character and his approach. 
but became uh, convinced that he was on the right track through your association and experience working with him. Can you talk a little bit about those early days and where that shift began? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I didn't have like a su- super negative view. It mm-hmm. was just that, you know, I was part of the Republican establishment. I was research director at the American Enterprise Institute, the, the sort of establishment think tank. And um, I was friends with people that were friends with Jared. And, and then when the president started searching for a, a chair for the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, they interviewed me and, and I talked to the president and we really got along. And he was seemed way different than the guy that I read about in the New York Times mm-hmm. or saw, you know, characterized on CNN or something. He's um, a really, you know, fun guy to work with, a, a, a sort of crack up. Um, you know, he's tough, but he's also uh, he's got like a heart of gold. And, and, you know, I really grew to be good friends with him. Uh, we work closely together. We still see each other now and then. Um, had dinner with him a couple times in the last few months. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, People don't understand the guy very well. And, and, and I have a bunch of stories in the book mm-hmm. that help you see him better. The, the, the first one was actually kind of a hard one on me, but it shows a, a side of him that people do know if they watch The Apprentice or something. And that is my very first presentation in the Oval Office. I went in there because I'm an economist, right, with some slides and things like that. And he's, he's really into data and slides, and he, he really did love that stuff. But he uh, flipped through, and, and one of my slides was about real estate prices and he said, looking at the slide, this slide is dead wrong. You've got, you know, bad data. You know, you know, what are you bringing, you know, bad data? You know, this slide has to be wrong. I know real estate better than anybody. There's no way this slide is right. Why are you bringing bad data into the Oval Office? And, of course, it wasn't bad data. And I, you know, had vetted everything within an inch of its life before I went in. And I just sort of said, no, sir, you know, I'm sorry, but you're incorrect and you're probably – uh, thinking about Palm Beach real estate, but you know the rest of Florida <laughs> is not doing the same as Palm Beach. And and he kind of smiled and laughed and shook his head. And I think I sort of passed the test, yeah. right? Because what you know, if you can't stick up for yourself, then why does he want to listen to you? Yeah, and I'm sure um, he came but, to respect that. Yeah, well, I think he did that. To I, I, I subsequently saw that he sort of did a test like that. So that that, that if, if you went in and you were going to be his advisor on any topic, let's just say talk radio. <laughs> then the first time you, you said something to him that, that he would say, no, that's dead wrong. That's not right at all. I know talk radio better than anybody. And you just gave me, you know, terrible advice. And then if you don't argue back, then you're not a person he wants advising. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, so that's one side, but the side that people don't see, um, I go into in a couple of stories of the book, but, but one of them was that as the council of economic advisors chair, there's something that like not many people know uh, that's interesting about the job, which is you get all the economic data, which, you know, moves markets and things like that a day before everybody else. You're the only person in government that gets it. And then if it's sort of interesting data, the reason you get it a day ahead of time is so that like because it moved a lot. If there's like something that's going to crash markets, you know, you need to scramble the troops and get ready to, to say things about what you're going to do about it. Right. And, and, and so that's why you get the data the day before. And I used to have to go and talk about the data the day before with the president, either at the end of the day um, or sometimes early in the morning before the data came out. And one time I was in Paris on a diplomatic mission and I couldn't brief the president on a really important job support. And my chief of staff was just like the president. And, you know, they spoke like New Yorkers with each other, waving their hands and stuff like that. And they really got along. And 
when I said I would be out of town, I told the president I, I had one of the other members of the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, economics professors, brief him. And he said, no, I want DJ to brief me uh, because the two of them, you know, he had a great deal of respect for her because she was in the office when I was in the Oval Office when I was briefing him a lot. And so DJ was going to brief the president about the job support, but she's not an economist. So she was pretty nervous about it. And so she was so nervous that as she's walking in in the morning to get into her car from her house to drive into the Oval about seven in the morning to see the president, she steps in a pothole and breaks her leg. No kidding. You poor thing, right? Okay. But, but being a New Yorker, she drives to, and she had kind of a bad parking spot at the White House too, which is unfair. I kept trying to change it, but the hierarchy of parking spots is like a whole nother book, right? <laughs> and so she, she was pretty far from the White House and she drove, she parked in her parking spot, which is probably about 250 yards from the entrance to the White House. She walked in, she walked into the Oval on a broken leg, briefed the president, and then, you know, walked out uh, nobody knew anything was going on. And then she went to the hospital and it was like a terrible break and they had to put it in a cast and all that. And um, when the president found out about this, he sent her the sweetest note, you know, basically talking about how honored he is to serve with a person who's so dedicated to their country, but also next time go to the hospital first. <laughs> 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 and, and it's, this is, and, and, and while, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I was in the oval and um, there would be some friend of his or friend of a friend that had a health issue. And then, you know, the um, person, the secretaries outside the Oval Office would say, oh, I've got so-and-so on the line. And he would interrupt the meeting to talk to the person to try to cheer them up. And, and that side of him is something that I think people just don't see. Um, and, and I think he doesn't really show it himself very much because you know, he does have a sort of TV persona of being a real tough guy, right? But but working with him was just an extreme pleasure. And, and it was especially because once you sort of made the cut, then you were on his team and he had your back. Well, it is interesting to see that, that aspect of his personality that certainly you didn't hear or read about uh, in the mainstream media. Now, the, the title of the book is The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Maybe a year and a half ago, we would have thought, oh, we're not really sliding towards socialism, primarily because of the work of the, uh, the Trump administration. Today, I think there's a bit of alarm um, that we have seen an accelerated effort moving us in that direction. Why did you think it was important not only to give us a portrait of the president that's rare uh, these days, uh, but also the role that he played during his presidency in stopping that slide and what's happened since? Yeah, you know, that that it, it is a thing that uh, happened to, to me in, in sort of real life. You know, you started out with, I'm this guy who... Uh, you know, was sort of skeptical about the president, but then surprisingly, you know, I didn't work on the campaign. He offered me a job. And then I went in and I saw that he advocated policies that were basically, uh, you know, pro free market, uh, you know, and pro little guy. Uh, and then we pushed those policies through together as a team and then they worked. And so while I was there, you know, income inequality declined, uh, wages, the bottom percent went up faster than for people in the top 10%. Uh, Three million people uh, went off of poverty. Seven million people went off of food stamps because the economy was so strong. And it was really because of his policies. Because you might recall that when he took office, everybody said that we had a new normal of bad growth forever. Wages, in fact, didn't grow at all under President Obama over eight years. And in President Trump's uh, uh, four years or three years before COVID, um, they went up 
$6,000 for the typical family. And, and so I, the thing that, that happens in the book is that, that about halfway through, you know, we've done all this stuff. I've characterized it. I've got a lot of stories of inside uh, baseball about President Trump's thinking about all these policies. And, and you would think that if you're a left-wing person and you saw poverty declining, income inequality declining, uh, wealth inequality declining, uh, then you would think, okay, well, I was skeptical about these guys' policies, and maybe I don't like the guy, but I should at least like reconsider my position on those policies because they really are helping poor people. But instead what happened was he got crucified. And I just started uh, noodling about, well, why did he get crucified? And then researching it and digging into it deeper and deeper. And I found basically that uh, that there is a sort of organized effort a large organized effort, which I described in half of the book, um, to you know control uh, America's media, to control America's universities by socialists who have a totalitarian agenda. And Donald Trump is the worst thing that ever happened to them because they're not really interested in income inequality. They're not really interested. You know, African-American unemployment was the lowest ever while Trump was president. And they say he's a racist and that they're the ones who defend African-Americans. But they're not interested in African-American unemployment. They're interested in power and whatever it takes to get power. And so they had to destroy the man. And so in the second half of the book, what I do is I describe this thing I call the drift which is, uh, you know, a drift could also be, be a noun. It's the thing that's floating down the river. It's this giant edifice that's been built up in our society to drive us towards totalitarian socialism. And I think that, you know, a lot of people on TV will say, oh, a socialist this, socialist that, but they don't ever go into the detail of, well, what is socialist and who's socialist? Where is it coming from? And that's what my book does. And so if you want to fight it, you kind of need to read the book to understand. Yeah, book. absolutely. It yeah, begins with, with understanding. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation again, talking with Dr. Kevin Hassett. He is the author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. And he uh, served alongside uh, President Trump and gives a very unique perspective on a pivotal presidency. We'll return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Kevin Hassett. He is the author of The Drift and former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. He offers a unique perspective on a pivotal presidency. He is um, unconnected and unbeholden to Donald Trump, he writes, and came to the administration with a critical eye. What he has written about The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, is essential information, not only in understanding how the Trump administration um, halted that tide at least for three years before COVID, uh, but where we stand today and what we need to do uh, to move back in in the direction of preventing that slide into socialism. Um, over Donald Trump's first three years in office, you point out some very significant economic advances that were not um, were not really given the credit that they deserved. And you also make the point that uh, this president was. Um, the victim of uh, he found himself in the middle, as you write, of a much bigger historical battle than the simple fight against Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. This was an epic battle. Uh, has it been lost? And what do you see happening in the future with regard to this drift toward socialism? Well, well, that's exactly the the right question, which is, you know, why you're the professional that you are but doing this for a long time. But the fact is that. Uh, in the book, I describe um, the sort of forward-looking visions of 
20th century thinkers about, you know, the broad swath of history. And um, one of the first ones that I look at is a guy named Joseph Schumpeter, who basically said that the American capitalism would work for about 50 years, writing in the 1920s, but that in the end it would fail and it would fail and it would uh, be returned to a socialist country. Because as we got richer and richer, everybody would send their kids to colleges and universities. And the professors at colleges and universities are always going to be socialists. He has a whole chapter on why professors are socialists. But the two-sentence version is they think they're better than everybody else, but they don't get paid that much. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, society must be unjust, right? Uh, and so, so the professors train everybody, uh, indoctrinate everybody to be socialists. Uh, and then the best students at Harvard who've been trained to be socialists go on to be the writers at the New York Times and the editors, the news editors at CBS News. And they basically push a socialist agenda that they've been taught, indoctrinated into thinking is the truth. Uh, and then launch a sort of Spanish Inquisition against anybody who would oppose it and defend free markets and capitalism. And so Schumpeter described the America that we live in, you know, really accurately in, in the 1920s. But what he didn't see was that uh, that there was going to be an Internet. And mm. so what what happened next was so we're living in a society where everybody is basically always running down conservatives, always running. You know, think about Mitt Romney's the nicest guy on Earth. You know, I know he disagreed with the president a lot, but but by the time he was done with the convention, right? He was like this woman hating, want to take away your birth control, dog torturing guy, right? And 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 that's what they do to Republicans. And so but but Marshall McLuhan, another great thinker that I talk about in the book, in the sixties, said, Well, when the internet comes, then the uh the elites are gonna lose their control over information because they're gonna like curate your life and tell you what news what's good news and what's bad news and not show you stuff at all. Uh, and they're going to lose the power to do that in the, when the internet comes. And in fact, the internet is going to create a global village, he called it, where there's a competition for attention. And the competition for attention is going to be uh, won by the sort of most uh, outrageous and, and, and most powerful voices. And that won't necessarily be the intellectual elites. And so that's exactly right. Isn't that the story of Donald Trump? So, so he spent almost no money on, on television ads or anything. He was just tweeting really interesting stuff that everybody had to go look at. And uh, he won. He became president. But what McLuhan said, and this is, uh, again, you know, characterizing the drift, and then we go deeper into it in the book, is that uh, the, uh, uh, the elites will see that they've lost their power over our lives when the Internet comes. And then what they'll do is, he called it, they'll organize inattention. Um, and what that means is basically what we're seeing. They'll cancel conservatives. They'll wipe them off the Internet. They'll make it impossible for them to use it so that you know they basically uh, can't compete with the curated society that drives us towards socialism. And so think about it. A guy who was an information theorist, a media theorist in the 60s and the 50s, said that Donald Trump was going to win, but then he was going to be canceled. Yeah, he anticipated. It's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what happened. But but the thing is, it's not just Donald Trump. The America First Policy Institute, which is the, a think tank started by a bunch of Trump people, and it's the fastest growing think tank in the country right now. It's doing amazingly well. But they have launched a lawsuit about the deplatforming of President Trump from uh, social media. And they put up a website where they asked uh, people around the country to put up their own stories if they've been canceled by social media. And they're up to about 100,000 stories 
And I was at a board meeting a few weeks ago where, you know, some interns had really dug through all the stories and they basically said, yeah, the stories are real. If you go out on the Internet right now and you, you know, and, and this is not talking about like election fraud accusations. This is simply just like defending the idea that the economy worked under Trump or something like that, then you get canceled. And so we are at the stage right now where the socialists almost won because they controlled the media and they controlled the message. Uh, and they did because Donald Trump, uh, you know, went around them with the internet, but now they're controlling the internet too. And so the question is, can we uh, stand up against that? Can we fight against that? Or are we going to lose? And if we lose that battle, then we are going to become a totalitarian socialist state. How optimistic are you that we will, first of all, fight the battle and second, win it? I think that we can. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the thing that, that I think, and, and this, again, I go into much more detail of the book, yes. is that the power that the left elitists have over us is the sort of quasi-belief that we have that they control respectability. And so, you know, like the Harvard guys are like, you know, way smarter than us. And so we should do what they're told, what, what they say. Right. And, and so that they sort of sneer at people who are stupid enough to defend free markets and, and withdraw respectability from them, make it impossible for them to get tenure at a university and so on if they're an intellectual. And, and so uh, what are they, oh, and, and while I'm in the White House, one of the things I noticed is even my colleagues, former colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, were unwilling to defend really sound Trump policies because they were worried that the people who control respectability would withdraw it. Uh, and, and so understanding that the left uses bullying and respectability as a weapon is the first step to victory. And the response to that is that we have to sort of stop believing it because they don't. You know, they're wrong about just about everything. And we have to understand that respectability is about being right, having the facts on your side. And that's something that you know, is not controlled by the universities. It's not controlled by the liberal elites. It's controlled basically by science, like true science. And, and I think that's step one. And, and step two is just studying the organisms that they've built and in recognizing what they're doing and then standing up and fighting against it. And, and so what are the things you do is if you see somebody being bullied by leftists, then you have to stand up and defend them. And, and most people uh, in the Trump years, in the late Trump years, would just duck because they didn't want to be attacked as well. And, you know, if conservatives uh, like Bush Republicans, uh, I was a Bush Republican. You know, I've met President Bush. Uh, I worked on his campaigns. But there are all these Bush Republicans that basically ducked and let Trump take all the fire. And if those people don't stand up and fight the drift, then the drift is going to win. Yeah, they they don't anticipate the ricochet that occurs. You assume that that one figurehead is going to absorb all of the uh, the attack and that it won't somehow ricochet onto you. But that certainly has been the case. You cover so many fascinating issues um, that we're facing, um, standing up to China, um, the the um, five million hours and counting what makes a country a country, referring to borders and so on. Uh, but let me ask you about the way forward. We are now perhaps more aware of the drift towards socialism, uh, the the temporary stay that we had under the Trump administration and how all of that is accelerated of late. What is the way forward for those who are willing to uh, accept the um, the challenge from opponents who want to 
uh, undermine any effort to challenge their ascendancy and their right to censor everyone else. Right. Well, well, I think that the way forward is to recognize that um, this is what's going on. Okay. So, so it's not just sort of, you know, CNN and left-wing media that, you know, most of society has been basically built up around the college and university system where they train the people and indoctrinate them into socialism that then go teach our kids in elementary schools and high schools all around the country. They uh, are, you know, the majority of the journalists who tell us how to think about what's going on in the world and that our country faces a serious threat from these people. And the answer is that we have to recognize it and then start to fight it in every way we can, of course, peacefully. But but like one example of something that's a real positive development is that a bunch of people are starting a new university, University of Austin in Texas, where they're going to basically celebrate free markets and um, not allow themselves to be taken over by the drift. And so what we as conservatives who believe in our country and the founding principles need to do is build our own institutions. Because our, if we build our own institutions, then they're going to be better than Harvard. They're going to be better than their institutions because their institutions have become so corrupt and, and really you know, devoted to socialism, which is just stupid. And, and so you can't assert that you're a home for a billion people if you're also defending socialism. Well, once again, the the title of the book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Uh, Dr. Kevin Hassett is the author, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under the Trump administration. There's so much more that our listeners need to read. Uh, The book is published by Regnery, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it and hope uh, our listeners uh, will take our advice and pick up the book and begin to read. Thanks. It's really been a great fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, Dr. Kevin Hassett. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Before moving on, I wanted to read an excerpt that I found encouraging from the uh, the book, The Drift, written by Kevin Hassett, my guest in the previous two segments. Um, this uh, chapter is titled The Greatest Hope of All, and he writes, Perhaps the greatest hope of all rests in minority communities, the Hispanic owner of a body shop in Los Angeles who is tired of the routine harassment of his small business by regulators and the tax man. The black parents in Detroit who've had it with their children going to public schools, um, uh, union-controlled schools that have underserved minorities for generations. The hard-working Asian student who faces a hard and fast quota system in higher education. The Angelinos who are sick of seeing Venice Beach turned to a, into a homeless encampment. The New Yorkers disgusted to see Washington Park turned into an open-air market for drugs and prostitution. The fate of America doesn't have to rest in the hands of a distant elite. It comes down to you. Whether you admire or hate Donald Trump, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you believe that the system we grew up with for all its shortcomings and flaws, and there are shortcomings and flaws, is morally and practically superior to socialism, you need to become an activist for freedom. Again, the book is titled The Drift, uh, published by Regnery. And if you didn't have the opportunity to hear our conversation, you could go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page to uh, hear the conversation with uh, Dr. Kevin Hassett, Hassett, rather, who is a distinguished fellow 
uh, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and served in the uh, Trump administration as the chair of economic advisor under the Trump administration. Well, today, of course, being the first um, uh, day, the first week um, of Advent, um, our sure hope in Christ's return is one aspect that we might want to consider as we prepare our hearts to um, to not just reflect on the birth of Christ, but to respond in a way that's honoring to him. And I wanted to just share Revelation 21, 1 through 6, that puts things into perspective. His first coming was an, a magnificent um, event that reflected God keeping his promise uh, to send the Savior, the Messiah, um, Emmanuel, God with us. And Revelation 21, 1 through 6 remind us that reminds us that that's the first bookend of the story. We are familiar with the life, uh, the ultimate uh, crucifixion, uh, death, burial and resurrection of and ascension of the Lord Jesus. But I wanted to read Revelation 21, 1 through 6 as we think about uh, this season of Advent to remind us of the rest of that story. It begins again, Revelation 21, verse 1 through verse 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for those words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, and he's referring to John, "Uh, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water, of the water of life. And as I think about the birth of the Savior, I am reminded that that's the first part of an ongoing story. And the rest of that story we find in Revelation. We should take heart. And while it's important to know what's going on in the world and who's making decisions and whether or not they're sound and the impact they're going to have, on culture and the society. It's more important to put things in the broader perspective, in the broader context of a sovereign God who has not abandoned his creation, but is completing uh, the very things that he has promised through his son. I am encouraged um, by what I read in scripture, and it helps me to endure the challenges that this life brings. I wanted to bring that up as uh, we enter the season of Advent Um, at the heart of the uh, the new future that God promises us. God dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. We have that to look forward to. It was John's vision. It's not just pious daydreaming. It gives us hope to live by today and tomorrow in the in the days ahead. We can start living toward what God promises And that will make all the difference to our lives right now. So as we begin this season of Advent, let's remember what God has said from the very beginning, what he did through his son, and what he promises for our future together in his presence. Man, I have something to look forward to, and it's not just Christmas with my family around a Christmas tree and opening presents. Uh, Long beyond that, 
we have a future in his presence dwelling where he dwells and he with us. So I hope you will take heart in the midst of it all. Well, I want to thank Chris Williams for um, engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and let you know tomorrow we're going to talk with uh, local author Gilbert Gleason. He's written the book Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. You'll learn more about them tomorrow on the program, and that will be in the first hour of tomorrow's program, again with local author Gilbert Gleason. So I hope you'll join us. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.